From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 122 of the Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Ryan and Dave, and we are hanging out, just having a good time, enjoying the summer. I'm I'm staying home, at least this week. I don't have any plans this weekend, but I had, a, I had an awesome weekend. Like, I had one of those weekends where it was, like, just full of summer activities. Like, it was, uh, went out to the Virginia countryside, did some breweries, on, uh, did a baseball game on... Sunday did the uh, like you hung out with some friends and saw a concert at Wolf Trap and anybody who ever, if you ever have the chance to come to the DC metro area and go to the only national park devoted to the performing arts I highly recommend it uh, because it is a great place to see a concert and you can bring your own booze and picnic. <laughs> there's well there's a triple win there Dave uh, a concert B uh, fantastic venue C your own libations that's fantastic see run we, by, we run by the it. national parks it's all I park know. rangers running and stuff it is super cool I, I uh, used to go see Little Feet at Wolf Trap yeah back nice. in the day see that's fantastic it's the local perk is, uh, is, is, is we have that resource here we, we all benefit from those kinds of local resources, right? You know, I, I have lived in a place where Red Rocks was down the road and in a place where the gorge in Washington State is just up the road. Uh, I'm a big fan of a fantastic concert venue, but, uh, you know, you, 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 it's, really, it's worth traveling around to go see those things. We decided to jump on a plane last week, came out to visit the family, and uh, this weekend we were reintroduced in a very nice way to the sublime pleasure of little kid baseball, where, you know, seven years old, they barely know what they're doing. The ball bounces off of them far more often than they go out to do something to it on purpose. And in the middle of a perfect summer day, sitting in a park, like drinking a milkshake and watching seven-year-olds learn to play baseball, I was like, okay, I've restored my optimism in humanity. I feel much better. My tank is full. The world is back to normal. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, this week we are brought to you by our friends at Gazinta. Did you know that the average MSP spends 10 hours manually inputting accounting data each week? That time is 120 prospect calls, a month's worth of the business of tech, or building an entire Lego Death Star. Gazinta Mobius can make your life easier through accounting automation. Automatic sync of invoices, expenses, and inventory from ConnectWise Manage into QuickBooks Online in just a single click of a button. With onboarding, direct support, and regular feature releases, Gazinta is a family-owned company dedicated to making software suck a little less each day. Visit them at gozinta.com. That's G-O-Z-Y-N-T-A dot com. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, let me start off today with our first topic. We're going to examine what is happening with the uh, actions of the Chinese government relative to cybersecurity. In the show notes, we're linking to a couple of articles that will give you some background and understanding on some official moves and announcements that have been made within the boundaries of sovereign China. 
And yet, I believe that there are going to be some implications from those moves that will trickle over and affect what we do here in the United States. So the first article basically talking about a new announcement from the government that says data is a national asset and it is both valuable and associated with national security and therefore not only is it important to have and analyze but it is mandatory to protect and so they they've mandated that every business in china must spend a minimum of 10 percent of their total it budget on uh, cybersecurity solutions in the years coming forward and they project that According to different estimates, they can as much as triple their overall domestic cybersecurity marketplace by creating that forced demand and supply. And then the second article kind of talks about how uh, all the application companies, 150 different companies that run applications in China, many of them from over here in the U.S., are being put through further detailed scrutiny on their practices for collecting and then analyzing or exporting customer data. I think there are some really deep implications going on here. What do you guys think about what's happening on the cybersecurity front in China? It's amazing what you can do with a market when you control the whole thing. Right? Everything. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, for, this is, for me, it's an interesting perspective to look at that really from the perspective of like, look, if there was central control of a market, what would those mar what would those controllers do? We have the op the ability to watch that market and then make interpretations about what will happen. We've talked prior about the bifurcation or trifurcation or quadrification or whatever of the internet. Here's more evidence, right? Like it's we're going to have multiple versions of the internet that run different ways. Uh, I, you have to recognize that clearly the Chinese government sees a cybersecurity problem that they want to spend on. Think of us as the threat to them, right? You are. I am confident that somewhere the U.S. government has ways of taking them on. They are saying we must defend against that. That should say something about the way the cyber war continues to escalate. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we talked about, I guess, the, the multiverse, whether it's a, two internets or three internets or whatever. But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that China could just pull the plug and say, you know what, we're going to shut you off entirely, not just the, the internet connectivity, but trade and so forth. And we have forever tried to say, oh, we, we got to get into that market. And now we're kind of reliant on it. And, and in part of what we're relying on is that they are actually secure and that they are not full of holes. They just got you know, called out as being responsible for uh, the, one of the more recent cyber attacks. And they, they literally want to say, hey, we're not Russia, <laughs> right? Uh, and that, you know, quote unquote, begins at home. Uh, luckily, as you know, we said, when you control absolutely everything, you can make some headway in this. Um, they also, kind of as a side note, they have a culture of avoiding responsibility because then everybody gets fired from the top down. Uh, and so people are less likely to report problems that they find where, you know, we have ways of sort of trying to force people to do that. Our, our corporations still hide these things unless they feel like they absolutely have to because it's going to be found out. Uh, that problem is times 100 in China.
See, and, and the thing I take away from this most of all is because, Carl, I, I read exactly what you're describing. The world got together and it wasn't just the U.S. who said, hey, we accuse you, China, of, of attacking the exchange servers. It was the, essentially the whole wide world except for Russia and China that pointed the finger and said, we're serious this time. We're not kidding. We know that it's coming from you. Now, naturally, they have said, wasn't me, right? Like they said, I don't know what you're talking about. It wasn't me. But the, the dot, dot, dot after that set of activities is that they have come out with a formal statement that says data is a national economic and security asset and must be treated as such. I think that is exactly the right point of view. We've been saying for a couple of years on this program, data is the new oil and you have to take this stuff seriously. Well, A, we're not the only ones who are saying that. B, they're going to move a whole lot faster, right? We have more controls in a larger cybersecurity marketplace as of today. But like you said, Carl, they can just come out and make a mandate and say, you must, and then everybody will. And I don't think we can rest on our laurels because I think we will find ourselves in a world of, if you'd like to play in China, you must adhere to their rules and the way that they do things. And then that's going to become a second way of doing business, which overcomplicates things. A lot of American companies are probably going to go, you know, just like we do with California, let's default to the more stringent standard and we'll just apply the Chinese standard to the way we do things. Now, well, for, for an economy who invented all of this stuff, we should maybe take a little offense at that. Well, it's, and this is where, like, I and Brian, I'm going to build on that because you know it's it's a little bit of like, are we going to act like the big dog that we are? I mean, like, so so the Ch Chinese the Chinese come out and declare it, and and they're going to do it from an authoritarian centralized perspective. The Europeans come out, throw down, do, you know, put out a set of laws for for the, that govern their own data protections, where they're going to try and protect citizens. What do we do here? Ah, we just sort of shrug federally, right? Like the fe the federal government just sort of says, eh, whatever. California weighs in because they've got a really big market, and so they're taking the lead. And in a way, it's like everybody else doesn't get the benefits. Like if you're not a California citizen or a European, like you have these these this sort of controls that the companies are going to put in place, but you don't get any of the perks, right? You don't get any of the actual benefits because you aren't actually a citizen of those realms. It's like, okay, the other 49 states, like, well, I'm in Virginia. We have a data protection law, and I think there's now one in, uh, did I get it right, in Colorado. So there's 47 other states where it's just like, well, good luck to you. Because, you know, because you don't actually have any controls. You know, I, this is where I just sort of look and say, like, are we going to act like the big dog that we are? Well, I don't think that China is too worried about what we do one way or the other. Um, and I think that part of what this represents is them saying that data is an asset, that's huge. That is literally, the, if nothing else, it's the foundation for us agreeing on where we go forward. And I love bringing up the, the contract for the web, you know, Tim Berners-Lee. And we need to figure out how to be friendly with somebody who is not friendly with us. And, and you know, we need to get along. And ultimately, there's so much money at stake I think we will figure out a way to talk to each other. I, I mean, I would, I would agree with that. I, my, my, I like to make this a little bit of a takeaway. Like, I keep talking about this stuff because I do believe anybody in the delivery of IT services has an awful lot of investment in getting these right. 
Like I think that there 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 is a and you know if you if you want to be part of the solution and drive this because by the way there's opportunity here like there's tons of opportunity here in getting this right in helping companies implement it when it happens you know if you just leave it alone we're sort of seeding the space well, with none of the perks. This is another example where middleware is where all the money is, right? Right. Yes. I mean, you you think about something like Infusionsoft. Infusionsoft itself is not that complicated, but most of their money comes from connecting things to Infusionsoft. So it's, yep. it's the middleware where all the juicy money is made. And now you can create middleware between China and the government of California, the, the industries in the US and so forth. Yep. Uh, it's like a whole new industry is being born as we speak. I completely agree with that, Carl. And I think that, you know, Dave, to take yours one step further, Everybody who's in IT services has a vested interest. Every business that runs an application that collects or produces data has a vested interest because that application is no longer peripheral or optional. It's now officially mission critical. And if we don't get it right, you stop being in business. All righty. So next topic is, is your next resume going to be in a two minute video? <laughs> TikTok has actually introduced a video resume service. And I, I think this is kind of a cool thing. I personally, I wouldn't want my entire job future to be staked on this. But uh, as the article that we point to uh, points out, the number of people who are in their uh, younger years who are not connected to LinkedIn is pretty small. And we always think of LinkedIn as like the place you go for a job and it's kind of your online resume and so forth. Well, maybe you just need to uh, boil it down. I know you guys have both hired lots of people and the worst thing that you can do in the world is go through a stack of resumes. It's like one of the most depressing things you can do. But if you watched a series of two minute videos, you might actually have a certain level of entertainment while picking your next employee. Now, whether that's a Good way to choose employees leads, you know, that that question is still open as far as I'm concerned. Well, I don't think it's the only way to do it, but you can already see it in, in certain. So, by the way, in, in the acting profession, they've moved to video reels as a way of having a listing because then a director can can see or a casting director can see what see an example. Right. And, and get a sense right. of you, not just a picture, but something like that. And, and I'll tell well, and speakers story. have speaker videos. Right. Right. Sharon did a PR thing recently. McCormick was looking for a director of taco relations. It's clearly a social media like kind of play to do it. But they're one and thing they really were asking. Fun. Right. A brilliant one. They were asking for two minute videos and Sharon said, I love tacos and I'm a video producer. I want to make that. And she put together a two minute video. But it, it was interesting about the exercises. It allows you to show it's working on a project. It's uh, showing creativity. It's showing your your level of, of expertise in a particular topic. Like it really does actually have some of those components. Do I think we're moving toward video resumes? Maybe not. Do I think video remains one of the greatest ways to send a message? Oh, totally, I do. Uh, and and right now, it's this this space of opportunity for somebody to differentiate. It will over time become norm. See, and that's that's exactly where I'm going to go with it. I think we are fast approaching a world where video will become mandatory for 
all forms of professional communication. We've teased ourselves here among the three of us how, you know, a year and a half ago, I had 11 or 12 things on my resume. And in the last year and a half, I've added another one that says video producer, right? Not because I thought that was a good career move, because it was absolutely mandatory to continue to do my job in a world of remote and instantly disconnected uh, working environments. Couldn't get on an airplane and go do what I do anymore. Therefore, I had to learn almost overnight to get good at video. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the last year teaching sales teams how to sell effectively when you cannot be in the room. And the first thing that I say to them is, okay, I want you to go back to the glory days and give me a, an activity breakdown of all the things you did as a salesperson and tell me what percentage of your time was actually face-to-face, -face, in person with a customer. And the traditional sales, I'm a field sales rep, I can't sell if I can't be there in person, I have to be there in person or I can't sell. The typical field sales rep spends less than 10% of their time actually with a customer, unless you happen to be like in the auto industry and selling cars at a dealership, right? If you sell technology, almost everything you do is remote. And almost everything you do is better with video, and it is absolutely staggering how many 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds we have talked to in the last year who are just adamant about video sucks and I you can't make I think it is rooted in a discomfort, in an embarrassment. I don't like the way my face looks on video. I don't like the way my voice sounds. There's a lot of reasons why, but I will tell you flat out, you can't be a salesperson in a business-to-business -business environment going forward from yesterday if you can't do video. You cannot yeah. be in public relations. You cannot be in marketing and business development. I think it's coming for us all. And uh, I just want to go back to the fact that, that you know, this is tied to who, you, which social media is used by which demographic. And if Gen Z is not using the old school, you know, your dad's social media, then uh, they're using something else. It's interesting because it, it, it means there's some self-selection that I'm going to get a different personality from somebody who is young and on LinkedIn than somebody who's young and on TikTok sending me uh, their two-minute resume. Uh, now, those people might be looking for a completely different job. So maybe it self-selects and they each get what they want and it's good for everybody. But I also worry that the video is going to lead to a new kind of unintentional discrimination against people who don't have the right equipment, don't have the right connections, don't know how to do this, don't know how to do that. And so they end up not being eligible for jobs. That just comes from the fact that they don't have the right technology uh, pieces in front of them. You're going to make me get on my broadband soap out box, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the like you know universal access is like like uh, power and water these days. I mean, it's just one of those things that is required. But there's also the comfort level of producing a series of videos and so forth. Again, some of that comes down to personality. If everybody has access to broadband and everybody has the ability to go online and just magically create videos, then it, it sort of evens the field. I'm not sure we're there yet technologically. We still well, have, you know, we have the stories of people in the in the COVID of they would take, you know, park a school bus in somebody's neighborhood because they didn't have internet connectivity. Yeah, we are absolutely nowhere near 
shamefully nowhere near where we should be on universal access. But I think if you look at this from the functional point of view, uh, in my life, I've written, I can't count hundreds of resumes for other people because I know how to do that and I can write a good one and, and, and I've been trained in how to present these things effectively. You might look at that resume and think, ooh, this person is young and, and vibrant, but they, they really know what they're doing. That sounds credible. And then you meet them in person and go, oh, I've been catfished on a resume. I, it's not actually the way this person is can't do that in a video, right? You are you on a video and whether you are comfortable or not speaks volumes about how you will interact with a customer or, base. With or you are that person for two minutes on video. <laughs> which, which, you know, that's what we've always said, right? There's a time when you are on stage in front of the curtain and there's a time when you are behind the curtain and not on stage and you must behave accordingly. I think we are in that modern communications world where if you cannot shine, I will tell you guys from a personal perspective, you know, every parent has their mandatory things they want their kids to do because it will make them successful in the world. The one thing, I don't care whether they played a sport or didn't or did whatever activities in school, the one thing I told them was learn to speak in front of a group of people, whether that was in drama or debate or other speaking activities. I said, you learn from your infancy how to stand and speak in front of a group of people because I don't care what you do. It will change your career path. Well, look, you're talking to three speakers, right. but <laughs> I'm going to move on from speaking to your face. <laughs> so what I want to actually talk about is uh, our third topic today is, is I'm linking to an article from the uh, from up north from our friends in Canada, and it's talking about how Ottawa tested facial recognition in uh, in Toronto's Pearson Airport for about three or four years, and what they were doing was they were running facial recognition tests and running the technology within the airport to track tra travelers, and they weren't disclosing that. And what I wanted, you know, this has been one of those areas of topic where with, with a number of cities now starting to ban the technology and a lot of discussion, like I wanted to revisit a little bit of our thinking around, you know, what are, what is the disclosure requirement, particularly if, you know, if you think about it from a government perspective or from a private perspective, and they may be different, what's our take on the requirements of what you have to disclose to citizens? I have days. to say my first reaction to this, because they would they had like this database of 5,000 faces, and then they would do a second screening if they thought that they found somebody and so forth. My first reaction was I would be disappointed if the government is not doing this. So the question is, do you need to disclose that there's a cop behind the billboard? <laughs> right? um, or do you simply expect that they are doing things to find people who are violating the law. Um, I kind of expect, and, and maybe it's just me, but I want my government to be doing this. So yes, there should be disclosure, but isn't the disclosure, I expect my government to be doing this. Yeah, I think so you're I, right. I, uh, go ahead, Ryan. No, I was going to say, I think you're right. Nobody has the, the right to be told to slow down because there's a speed trap ahead. Ways will tell me that these days because that's a technological innovation, but it's not uh, it's not a civil right to be told ahead of time that you have to behave. 
the expectation is you should be behaving all the time anyway. So I don't have a problem with the fact that they do this, especially in an airport, good heavens, that is the most supposed to be the most secure place that regular citizens go on a frequent basis. And so I would expect them to be doing very many, very advanced things. I do think it is necessary to put a little sign on the wall that says, hey, by the way, we are checking your okay. face because as have we you been to California? Before, there are we have this law that says yes. you have to disclose when any chemical might have adverse effects on anything. And that little placard and sign is on every building, every gas station pump, every bottle of water, every microphone. It's literally every it's completely meaningless and useless because it's everywhere. To me, that's what security at the airport is. I don't need a little sign on the way in to say, oh, they might be doing those things. So let me push back. Let me, so I'm going to disagree, but, I, but at the same time also agree. Like, I'm not pushing for disclosure for the signs. I think it's important that the government be very transparent about what programs it's running so that there is oversight of those programs to ensure that they are not being misused. That for me is more, much more important than there be a sign, right? Like I, I don't, I, I'm not necessarily worried about being aware of every single camera or something, but I, I do feel it's important that our government be transparent to its citizens about the programs that it's running so that they are not abused and so that there is a level of oversight that can be done. That's where I come down on this is, is that, you know, and, and it is to ensure that there is the ability to inspect and review that by the citizenry if to ensure that it's being done correctly. Right. And that's what journalists do. And that's what researchers do. And I tend to, you know, I very much fall on the, the, the side of I think things run better when things are transparent. Right, I run my own businesses that way. I, I run my like I, civic organizations run that way. The more transparent you are, I think the things run better. I'm a big advocate for open source. Why? I like it because I like I like the, you think security researchers can do a really good job with that. And so it falls for me into that category. And I don't want transparency to be misread as there must be a sign, because I do, because that's different than the transparency that I'm actually looking for, which is it just needs to be in the public domain as something that were that is askable and knowable versus not knowable yeah see i think you've made the much more nuanced argument there right it is you're right carl too much signage becomes pointless the disclosure is not necessary at the point of interaction it is at the point of oversight and exactly like you said dave some applications have racial biases some of them have notable inefficiencies in recognizing different genders or different hairstyles. And we've documented a lot of those things and those should be examinable at, at a responsible level, but that's not necessary at the point of walking through the lobby of the airport or through the turnstiles in the security line. That's, you're in the line, you are subject to whatever rules are there. It is the question of how is that designed and administered? And by the way, Anyone who's ever been through Toronto Pearson Airport, um, just assume they're doing everything there. That's the hardest security <laughs> airport I've ever been through in my entire life. And I've been to Turkey and China and all right, the other. And that's, that's kind of my point is that 
you know, from a civil libertarian perspective, I don't want the government to be monitoring my specific conversation. Like, I don't want them to have somebody reading my lips on the camera as I'm having a casual conversation in the food court. But me walking through and them doing facial recognition in, you know, trying to do that in a, a huge crowd, again, I hope the U.S., I know the U.S. is doing this in every single airport. So the question is, where do you draw the line between what your expectation of privacy is? I don't want them reading my lips. I don't want them, you know, zooming their microphone into my conversation. But knowing that I was on in the airport on that day, uh, you know, they already have my ticket information. <laughs> they have my boarding pass. Well, they have my clear, you know, thumbprint, uh, you know. They know I'm there because it is a, because because of that. The only, you know, I, I fall back on the very simple security policy and and a premise of trust but verify. Right. The only way we can trust them to do the right things is the ability to also verify that they are not doing the bad things. And you've set a, a particular line, right, that says I I am okay with this. I'm not okay with that. In order to know that they're only doing one and not doing the other. We need a way of verifying that that's only what happens because it, you can see it being very tempting to go one step further in the cause of the greater good or in, in case of like they're looking for a particular, they're doing a particular investigation and, and you, you can see how those good intentions can lead to bad results quickly if you're not also putting forth that trust but verify. And so for me, it really comes down to that is, is I like these things. We should... We don't need them in our faces. We don't need signage everywhere, but it does need to be a matter of some level of public record in order to ensure that we know it's happening. Yep. And, and I would go so far as to say, if you voluntarily showed up at the airport today, you have surrendered any reasonable expectation of privacy up until the barrier of your private conversation, right? Your face is there. You chose to go there and it is reasonable for them to analyze whether you're a good person or a bad person while you're walking through the airport. As long as it's done ethically and accurately and professionally, I'm totally okay with that. And, and I go back to the level of, as we've said before, there are many things in AI and facial recognition in the smart city application that I am a staunch advocate of. I think those will unlock phenomenal advantages and opportunities for citizens and businesses and governments. I just have that really stringent ethical requirement that let's let's not be biased and bigoted about the way we do it. All righty. Well, again, another topic that we will revisit many, many times. And that will do it for episode 122 of the Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.